0: So today we're going we're gonna to look at some, some, some passages that I think some of you may have had questions on. There's some really powerful passages uh, that sometimes make us ask questions that seem tough to find answers to. And I think we're going to find them today because we're going to discuss how Jesus himself described the cost of discipleship. Okay, And that's what the, the title of the message is, The Cost of Discipleship. Here's the thing you have to remember. Becoming a born-again believer, just becoming a Christian, a believer, is completely free. I mean, it's by faith alone. I think all of us know that, right? I think we're all pretty well settled in that. Okay, very good. Now, listen, but becoming a disciple, I mean, when you guys all know disciple means follower, pupil, right? Becoming a disciple can have a very, very heavy price. And this is what Jesus is going to explain uh, to his disciples. So, But the thing you need to remember and the thing he's going to remind them is that the rewards of discipleship weigh outweigh the cost of discipleship so let's jump right in i'm going to try to cover a lot today Uh, we'll see what happens okay matthew chapter 10 starting in verse 32 jesus said everyone who acknowledges now some of your bibles may say confess but everyone who acknowledges me publicly here on earth i will also acknowledge before my father in heaven but everyone who denies me here on earth i will also deny before my father in heaven Okay, now, these verses have confused a lot of people for many, many, many years, right? And, and here's why, because some say that these verses imply that there is a public confession required before someone's salvation is complete, before someone can have eternal life. Now, has anybody ever heard that interpretation, where you're not saved until you confess it to somebody? Yeah, won't hold water. See, we know that interpretation is wrong, because confession is a work. And we are not saved by. Okay, don't be the morning crowd. Okay, we are not saved by. Work. We're not saved by works. Right, Ephesians 2 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of. Work. Works, morning crowd. Not as a result of. Work. Works, so that no one may boast. Listen. Believers are saved the moment they trust Jesus Christ for their eternal life. We are a child of God the moment we believe that. There is no need for a confession. Just faith alone in Christ alone. Okay, and to prove that further, there were actually Jewish leaders who had secretly believed, but yet the Bible calls them believers. John 12, 42. It says, many people did believe, however, including some of the Jewish leaders, but they wouldn't what? Admit it for fear that the Pharisees would expel them from the synagogue. Now, we knew that they believed, it tells us they believed, but they were afraid to admit it because they were afraid they would be cast out and shunned from the synagogue. So, that's not what it's talking about. This is not dealing with salvation. Okay? So, what is he actually talking about in verse 32? What's that confession or acknowledgement that Jesus is talking about? You can answer that just by looking and identifying the audience that Jesus is talking to. Listen, context determines meaning. Always make sure you know the audience, who they're talking to, what the situation surrounding what you're reading is. Jesus was talking to his disciples about becoming good followers or good disciples. He's talking to them about that. So he's talking to disciples who had already believed, so he is talking to believers, right? He is talking to believers. Now, the acknowledgement that he's talking about, See, people say, oh, they're talking about a confession to complete your salvation. Well, listen, he's not talking about a one-time confession here, right? That's not what he's talking about, because Jesus knew these disciples would face a great deal of persecution. I mean, think about it. The Roman government hated what he was doing. The Jews hated what he was doing. Some of the pagans hated what he was doing. So there were enemies everywhere pushing back against this movement. So he knew that when they stepped out, they were going to face a lot of, of persecution. So the confession or acknowledgement he was talking about was a lifelong process of continuing to confess and acknowledge Christ despite the fact that they were being persecuted, right? Despite the fact that they were being so heavily tried. And listen, I'm sure some of you have been persecuted. How many people have been persecuted for your faith ever in your life? Raise your hands. Then some of you need to live it louder if you haven't been. I'm just going to say that. But Here's the thing, it's going to happen, but especially then when it was such a hostile environment. So he's saying the confession he's asking for is a confession continually as they're going out and being persecuted, right? Because believers who confess him, despite being persecuted, those believers are going to be rewarded. Now, obviously, God always blesses us here on earth when we do what we're supposed to do. But the blessing that he was really talking about when he said, I'll confess you before my father, when he was talking about that reward, he was talking about the coming kingdom. See, to the Jew, the greatest thing that could happen was for you to be able to serve alongside your Messiah in the Messianic kingdom. They look forward to that. That, is some, that was a promise God made them, and every Jew wanted to be able to serve in that kingdom. So what he was saying is those who don't confess him will be, not, will be denied not just some blessings here on earth, but they're also going to be denied the ability to serve in that coming kingdom. Okay, everybody with me? Well, that was reassuring. Everybody with me? I don't know why I can't have your attention. Look at the eye candy. Okay, anyway. Yeah, I might have puked in my mouth too. Anyway, so another thing I want to look at that's really important, if you look in verses 32 and 33, notice he says, I will confess or I will deny you, Before my father. Okay, before my father. Now, I'm going to go a little in depth here because there are two coming judgments that are about to happen. There are two coming judgments. Okay, there is one judgment coming for just believers. And there is another judgment coming just for unbelievers. Okay, believers are going to be judged at what's known as the judgment seat of Christ. Okay, you may have heard of it as uh, called the Bama seat. See, back in the Isthmian games, back in Roman times, there was a seat called the Bema seat, and that's where the judges sat, who rewarded people for winning a race, and they would give them their wreath of laurels. When they won, they would go to the Bema, the judge's seat, and receive their laurels. So some people call the judgment seat of Christ the Bema, or the, the seat where you receive your rewards. So believers are going to be judged at this. Now let's take a look at this. I, I love these verses. I'm going to be honest with you, I'm going to hold myself back, because I know I don't have a lot of time. But I love these verses, because this specifically talks about that. First Corinthians 3.10. The Apostle Paul says, Because of God's grace to me, I have laid a foundation like an expert builder. Now others are building on it. But whoever is building on this foundation must be very careful. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one we already have, which is? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. So what's the foundation? Jesus Christ, he identifies that. Verse 12, anyone who builds on that foundation, what foundation? Jesus Christ. Now, remember, only believers can build on the foundation of Christ. You realize that, right? Okay, it means Christ is your foundation. You believe that you can build on that. Anyone who builds on that foundation may use a variety of materials, gold, silver, jewels, wood, hay, or straw. Now, listen to this, but on the judgment day, So there is a judgment day for believers. Fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. The fire will show if a person's work has any value. Now let me pause for a second. We are pre-programmed to go into default mode every time we read fire in the Bible. When we read fire, we automatically assume it's talking about Hell. hell. When actually, most of the time in the New Testament, when it's talking about fire, it is not talking about hell. Most of the time, it uses fire to signify purifying or purification, and it uses fire to signify judgment. Okay, so I just wanted you to know that. When you hear fire, don't automatically go, oh, hell, hell, that's not what it is. Okay, verse 14. If the work survives, this is the work they built on the foundation of Christ, that a believer builds on the foundation of Christ. If the work survives, that builder will receive a reward. Now pay careful attention. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. What is the great loss? They will not be able to serve in the kingdom. That's a great loss to a Jew, to have to sit the bench during that kingdom. They will suffer great loss. The builder will be be saved, but like someone barely escaping through a wall of flames. Okay, so listen. Only believers take part in the judgment seat of Christ. And this happens right after the tribulation period, right before the kingdom. Okay, only believers. And this judgment determines who's going to be able to serve in this kingdom. That's the whole point of this judgment. Okay, now, I'm going to go ahead and give you the other side, right? Unbelievers, there's, there's a place they will be judged to, and it's called the great white throne of judgment. How many people have heard of that? Good. Great white throne of judgment. Look at this, Revelations 20:11 through 15. And I saw what? Oh, my gosh. Bless your hearts. Bless your hearts. And I saw a great white throne, throne and the one sitting on it. The earth and sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne. And the books were opened, including the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up its dead, and death and the grave gave up their dead. And all were judged according to their deeds. Then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. And anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So the judgment that only unbelievers go to is the, the great white throne of judgment. And it's really more like a sentencing hearing. You know what I mean? You know how you get, sent, you get you know, found guilty and then you have another hearing to determine what your punishment is. Right, this is basically a sentencing hearing. Nobody's having a crooked lawyer get them off here. Okay, they uh, everyone that comes to this has rejected the mercy and grace and love of Christ, and they are receiving the sentence for that rejection. So, there are the two judgments. So, in verse 32 and 33, this is about believers being rewarded in the kingdom. Right, those who confess Him, even though they're being persecuted, who stand strong and are willing to say, I still am his, and he is still mine, despite the fact that you're persecuting me. Those people, he'll stand before the Father and say, Father, I know they weren't perfect. I know they made mistakes, but they never failed to confess me. They never backed off. Even when they were persecuted, they stayed the course. When they veered off, they came right back. These people are worthy of serving in this kingdom. They already have eternal life, but they are worthy of serving in the kingdom also. That's him confessing them before the Father right and those who deny him he'll be saying you know yes they're mine they're covered under my blood and they will spend eternity in heaven but they cannot have the right to reign in the kingdom because they refused to confess me they gave in to the pressure that's what that's talking about now in second timothy i love this is one of the most powerful passages about this second 2 timothy 2:11 2, it says this is a trustworthy statement if we die with him we will also live with him that's talking about your eternal life right verse 12 if we endure hardship We will what? We will reign with him. We will reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. Deny us what? The ability to reign reign with him. Right? If we are unfaithful, here's the powerful one. For all those people who make mistakes, how many are out there? (laughs) Wise choice, raising your hands. (laughs) How many broken people out here? Okay, this is our passage. You can just call me Pastor Broken. This is me too. If we are unfaithful he remains faithful. he remains faithful listen this is powerful for he cannot deny who he is i love this because here's what happens the moment we believe a piece a part of god lives here we serve a triune god god the father god the son god the holy spirit they're one godhead the moment we believe god the holy spirit lives in here it's a part of god and listen when you believe It takes up housing eternally. And here's what's going to happen is you may not be a faithful servant and you may deny him and he may not be able to give you the ability to reign. But just like someone escaping through a wall of flames, right, they will still be saved. Why? Because a part of him lives in you. And for him to deny you entrance into eternal life would be denying himself because a part of him lives in here. So he's going to give you eternal life, even when we're faithless. And for someone who struggles, isn't that awesome to know that even when we fail, he is faithful. When we are faithless, he is faithful. So this is what it's talking about. When he says, deny you or confess you, he's saying, or acknowledge, depending on what your, your translation says, he's saying, if you acknowledge me, I'll be able to reward you in the kingdom and bless you on earth. If you deny me, I can't do that. Now, I'll still get, I promised you eternal life. You will have it. But the great reward of serving in the kingdom, you'll have to miss that one. Okay, now we're going to jump on to another passage as we keep moving through that also gives people a lot of difficulty. They struggle with it. It's a little confusing. And to be honest, it's kind of concerning. Jesus says in Matthew 10, Do not imagine that I came to bring peace. These three words are important. To the earth. Do not imagine that I came to bring peace to the earth. I came not to bring peace, but a sword. Anybody already starting to struggle with that? Okay. Everybody sees the signs in everybody's yard at Christmas. Peace on earth. Goodwill towards men. Right? I came not to bring peace, but a sword. I have come to set man against his father, daughter against her mother, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Your enemies will be right in your own household. Right in your own household. Now, We all know that there are a lot of references in the scripture about Jesus and peace. Am I right? And we all think of him as peace. And I'm going to give you a few passages. In Isaiah chapter 9, this is a prophecy about the coming Messiah or Jesus. He says, for a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of... Prince of Peace so Jesus is known as the Prince of Peace. It's kind of confusing, isn't it? John chapter 14 verse 27 Jesus says, "Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled nor let it be fearful." Now listen. I only mentioned a few references here, but we see that Jesus and peace go together throughout the scriptures. Wouldn't you agree? So why did he say he did not come to bring peace, but a sword? Kind of confusing. Anyone ever wondered that before? Well, we're going to answer that. All right. The peace that Jesus gives is a peace that he gives to those who believe. Okay. And it's internal and it's spiritual. Okay. Colossians 315, it says, and let the peace that comes from Christ Rule in your hearts. Remember when it says hearts, the word there literally translates thoughts, minds, right? Rule in your hearts, for as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and always be thankful. So let me explain. See, believers should have an inner peace. We should have an inner confidence that comes from faith. Now, there are times we don't have that spiritual peace, and that's usually when we're allowing ourselves to drift away from God. And when we don't feel that peace that he gives to all of us, it's his warning sign saying you need to get back. Right. But we should have an inner peace and confidence that comes with faith. Right. That's something he gives us. Peace. I give you. Right. But believers don't always have peace in the fallen world that we live in. Okay, they don't always have peace in this world because the world that we know is under the control of the enemy. Did you know that? It's under the control of the enemy, and I don't know if anybody's told you this, but Satan and God don't get along, right? So the world system is ran by the enemy. So do you really think that people who love Christ are going to get along and have peace with a world that is ran by the enemy? We're not going to have peace with them. 1 First, First John 5, 19 says, We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, right? The evil one. So here's what he's talking about when he says, I didn't come to bring peace on this earth. Here's what he's talking about. When you put your faith in Christ, you no longer fit in with the domain of the enemy. You don't fit in and it will bring separation. It will bring separation. Believers and unbelievers will have a problem there or the world because you don't think the same way. Your priorities are not the same anymore. And sometimes, oftentimes, the separation comes From your friends, from your family, and from your peers. It absolutely happens that way. When I first believed, see, I was raised in a church that was very hardcore, old-fashioned, you know what I mean? And they were kind of separatists. They kind of believed they were the only ones going, to be honest with you, right? And so when 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 I believed, when I became a Christian, it wasn't there. And so when I chose a different path, it brought real separation between me and some of my family. Because, see, now that, you know, I wasn't going to that church, I was like kind of shunned for a while. I remember I called one of the ministers there I thought highly of, and I said, hey, guess what? He's like, what? I said, I, I became a believer. I mean, I've trusted Christ. Here was his response. I'm not joking. Well, you can fool me, but you can't fool God. And I'm like, wow. I Felt pretty good up till right now. <laughs> Some of my family kind of distanced himself from me. One time I was asked to hold prayer and some of my family members left the room because they're not going to hear someone from a different denomination that not that's not the, you know, in club pray. So it brought some separation. It brought some separation, you know, with my family. And, you know, some of my old friends, it brought separation with them. Some of my old party friends kind of abandoned me. They literally told people, you're going to, have to stay away from Mosley. He's brainwashed now with religion. He got religion. That's what they said. I mean, I wasn't standing at their door trying to hand out tracts. I just became a believer and I don't want to do the same things. And this is the same guys that swore their allegiance to me at two in the morning. No, seriously, I love you, man. <laughs> me and you forever. No matter what. Same people. He's brainwashed. Wanted nothing to do with me. It brought separation between my friends and myself, and and, and it was strange. When The people I worked with, my peers, used to mock me and make fun of me and call me Jimmy Swagger and Jim Baker. What's with the Jim names there? But Jimmy Swagger and Jim Baker, and I'm like, seriously, I'm way better looking than both of those. No, just kidding. No, but they made fun of me. They mocked me. They laughed at me for having my Bible. All my peers, I mean, so I'll be honest with you. When I first became a believer I didn't have a whole heck of a lot of peace with the world it's like all the people in the world that I knew my friends some of my family some of my peers are all like never mind and push me away that's what Jesus is talking about the sword that came was the fact that he cut me loose from the world and brought me into his realm I was one of his now I was a part of a different family and they didn't like me much anymore But the cool thing was was I found out that the peace that he left with me, that he gave me, was so much more powerful working inside me that I didn't really care what they thought. Because I had peace here. I had peace right here. So if you remember, Jesus never said we'd have peace with the world. You will not find a passage where Jesus says, you're going to be at peace with everybody. They're going to love you, listen to you talk about the Bible. They're going to want to embrace everything you say. They'll listen to your testimony. He never says that. He says, I didn't come to bring peace on this earth. I came to bring a sword. I'm going to separate you from them, and it might cause problems. John 16, 33, Jesus says, I told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth, you will have many what? Trials Trials and sorrows. Anybody ever had a trial or sorrow over the faith? Yeah, you're out there. Trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. He's saying, yeah, they're not going to like you. You're not on their team anymore. don't worry about it. I'm going to let you in in on some information. We win. We win. I've overcome the world. This is what he was saying. This is really, really powerful. So the peace that Jesus did promise us is more valuable than any other peace we could have. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says, don't worry about... See, the power's in the hand. (laughs) Evidently. Don't worry about Anything. anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need. And thank him for all he has done, then you will experience God's peace. peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. So, does that clear that up a little bit about what he's talking about? He's not saying, I came to make everybody fight one another. He's saying, I, I'm separating you from the world. You're not going to have peace with the world, but you will have it with me. Okay? Now, the last thing we're going to talk about is. He starts to tell the disciples as he's describing the cost of discipleship. He says, listen, I I want you to understand you're going to have to change your priorities a little bit. Okay, here's how your priorities are going to have to work. The first thing he taught them was about prioritizing love. Now, this passage, a lot of people trip over. So let's see what you think. Matthew 10, 37. Jesus says, if you love your father or mother more than you love me, you are not worthy of being mine. Uncomfortable with anybody? Okay, listen. Or if you love your son or daughter more than me, you are not worthy of being mine. I've had so many people come to me and go, I don't, I don't think I could do that. And I go, what do you mean? They go, I just don't know if I can love Jesus more than little Johnny. He's so cute. I don't know if I can love Jesus more than I love my wife or my husband. I, I, maybe I'm not a Christian. I don't think I can do that. Listen, I know this statement seems a little strange and a little unsettling. But Jesus is not saying that you should somehow love your family or friends less that's not what he's saying in fact he's actually saying the exact opposite see here's how it works experiencing God's love literally shows us what love should look and act like now you love your children and you love your family don't take me wrong it's a passionate deep love but when you experience the love of God you will see what love looks like and acts like, and it will make you love your children, and your wife, and your friends even more. Listen to this: First John four, starting in verse seven. Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. But anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is, God is love. Listen, that's more than a sticker people put on their walls or their car windows. God is love. See, God is the author of love. Apart from God, love would not exist. God is the author of love, and only through him can we learn to truly love. See, because in this world, love has so many conditions. It's not really real love. You know, people say, I love you or I love them because, I love that guy because he's so funny. I love my wife because she supports me. I love my husband because he's such a hard worker and he cares for me. I love my friend because he's always there for me. Listen, most people only love on a conditional basis. Meaning, if you meet someone's criteria, you'll be loved. Or if someone meets your criteria, you will love them. That's not how love is supposed to work. See, God's love is completely unconditional. And is based solely on His grace. Listen to this, Romans 5, 6 through 8. For while we were still helpless talking to believers, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One sentence, we're called helpless and ungodly. One sentence, not somebody you'd line up to love. Verse 7, for one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would even dare to die. Now listen, what this is saying is somebody will jump in front of a bullet for the president or for some rock star or sports figure. Nobody's diving in front of a bullet for Chris. They probably will use me as a shield. Right. Verse eight. Here it goes. But God demonstrates. Listen, love is an action. It's always demonstrated. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were what? Yet sinners, Christ died for us, meaning God loves us despite our flaws, despite our mistakes, despite our faults. He loves us anyway, unconditionally. He saved us, sent his son to die for us, knowing we would constantly mess up, that there would be those of us who would not. Uh, who would not confess him before men when we were persecuted, knowing we would make you know, dumb decisions, knowing there would be times we would reject him. But his love was so powerful and so potent that it was willing to look past all that just to have an opportunity to be with him. He loved us that much. Now, only when we prioritize our love for God as first will we know how to really love somebody. Because God wants us, listen, this is something I don't think we remember, God wants us to love our family and friends and others the same way He loves us. Now, how will we know what that is if we don't know Him? But that's how He wants us to love. Listen to this, John 13, 34, Jesus says, So now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. You are following me. Right, listen. When the world sees that we can love unconditionally, when the world sees that we can love like God loves, they'll know something is different between us and them. When they see that the people everyone has written off and everyone who uh, avoids and dodges and people don't like because they're addicts or they're abusive or whatever whatever sin has taken them over, when they see that Christian people can love them and reach out to them, you know what? They say something is different about them. They know how to love. And listen, if we don't learn how God loves How are we going to show him to other people? It's through us loving like God loves that our children will see God in us, that our spouses will see God in us. That's what draws them to him, that people at work will see God in us. So when he's saying, if you love mother or father or whatever more than me, you're not worthy of me, he's not saying, don't love them, just love me. He's saying, love me first, and I'll show you how to love them. Then you'll be worthy of me, and I will show you how to love them and make them see my love in you. That's what he's talking about. That is so powerful. Gosh, I could keep going, but I've got to move on. Well, uh, he, now this is, this is a big one, another big one. but next thing he tells him is how to prioritize discipleship as a whole. Matthew 10:38. Jesus says, "If you refuse to take your cross to take up your cross and follow me, you are not worthy of being mine." Oh, I'll come to it. Anyway, verse 39. If you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. Now, a lot of people mistakenly also use this passage as a salvation scripture. And it is not. Again, he is talking to his disciples. They're already believers. They're already believers. He's not telling them, listen, pick up your cross and follow me and you'll be saved. They're already saved. This is not what he's talking about. This is a complete misrepresentation of the context. He's actually talking about discipleship, once again, or becoming a real follower. Now, just so you know, this is the first time the cross is even mentioned in Matthew. Okay, but it's for a very important reason. Because, see, the Romans were cruel in their punishment. And what they would do is, when they punished you, they wanted to humiliate you. They wanted to make sure that everybody knew you were guilty in their eyes and you were being punished. So when someone was to be crucified, not only were they going to suffer the worst death known to mankind, they would make them carry the cross they were going to crucify them on to their spot of execution so that everyone could see them and spit on them and throw stuff at them and say, there's the criminal carrying his cross because he's guilty. And so it it was part of the punishment to carry the cross to identify them as someone who was found guilty. Right? If you remember when Jesus was crucified, he had to carry his cross. Remember that? That was part of them trying to humiliate him. They were saying, this is the one that said he was the son of God. And now he's carrying his cross up the hill that he's going to die on for that statement. Right. So Jesus warned his disciples that following him was going to bring great persecution. He's saying, before you say you're going to follow me, I want you to really ask yourself, are you willing to face the persecution, even if it means imprisonment, being punished and beaten and being martyred? Are you really willing to do that? Because let me tell you something. I am going to have to carry the cross to prove to the world that I am God's. I am going to, I refuse to deny that I'm the son of God. And that's going to cost me my life because it's worth it to me to be identified as who I am, the son of God. And I will carry that cross. Here's the cross you're going to have to carry. You're going to be identified as one of my followers, one of the People who are following the man that was crucified for claiming to be God. And they're going to hate you, and they're going to persecute you. Some of you are going to give your life. As a matter of fact, all of the apostles died, uh, you know, martyred except for one. You're going to be made fun of. It's going to be a rough life. Like me, you will carry the cross of persecution for your faith. Are you really willing to do that? Because if you want to be a real disciple, you can't be partially committed. You've got to be all in. Because if you bail at the sight of persecution, they won't think I'm that important to you. So if you want to be worthy of me, pick that cross up. That cross that says I'm his, do what you will to me. I'm still his. I'm looking beyond this world. Pick up that cross if you want to really be a disciple. Because you either have to be all in or not in at all. You either have to be all in or not in at all. Even if it costs me, my friends, my family, my peace in this world, I'm all in. Will you carry that cross? This is what he's talking about. It's a warning to his disciples. Okay, everybody still with me? There we go, good. All right. Last section, I promise. I hope. Anyway, the last thing he tells them to prioritize is service. Matthew ten forty it says Jesus says, Anyone who receives you receives me. Remember, he's talking to his disciples. Anyone and anyone who receives me receives the Father who sent me. If you receive a prophet as one who speaks for God, you will be given the same, listen, the same reward as the prophet. Right? And if you receive a uh, righteous people because of their righteousness, you will be given a reward like theirs. And if you even give a cup of cold water to one of the least of my followers, you will surely be rewarded. Okay, this is powerful because in verses 40 through 42, he's speaking of the importance of supporting ministry. I know what you all are thinking. Oh, here's this plug for money. No, listen. Okay, stop saying that, even though I said it for you. Right, that's not what he's talking about is the importance of supporting ministry. See, when you receive the gospel message, it's just like receiving the words of God as if he were speaking to you. Because the word of God is the breath of God. When you receive his message, you receive him. When you receive the messenger, it's like receiving him because he was sent. And when you listen to who was sent, you are telling Jesus, I believe your message. You should support the messenger, right? And when you support anyone in ministry, you're actually supporting Jesus, whether it be a mission, a church, a shelter, whatever it may be. When you support them, you are supporting Jesus. Because listen, Jesus even said giving one of the ministers a cold cup of water, one of the prophets, would get you a reward. And I know this sounds strange, but but, I mean, stick with me. right? Because what he's saying is, listen, there are some people who are gifted in ministry. And there are some people gifted in supporting ministry and making it happen. Some people have the gift to minister. Some people have the resources to make sure they can do that. And it may be financially. It may be prayer. It may be encouragement. It may be helping out, working, whatever it may be. He's saying, maybe you don't preach. Maybe you don't do those things. But when you make sure it can happen, you get the same reward. When you give money to a mission. You may not be over there building the buildings. You may not, be, may not be over there teaching the masses, but you enabled it to happen. So guess what? Whatever reward they get, you get, because you made it happen. You made that happen. One of the greatest things, one of the greatest supports I ever had, when I first started preaching, I preached in an expository style, uh, and the church I went to was a little more verbal and loud and stuff, and, and I'm not dogging that, It just amy, me, Right? And so I started preaching like this, and, and literally people were saying, well, he's a teacher, not a preacher. Gosh, that statement makes me want to projectile vomit. I can't take that. <laughs> so I'm sitting here going, okay. And, and a lot of people were dogging me because I was jumping around and kicking and snorting. And I'm like going, well, you know, I'm, I kind of believe that you should be the same person in the pulpit that you are when they see you at Walmart, or they just don't buy it. And if I'm up here yelling and slobbering all over the place, you guys are going, what is, what is he doing? He's crazy enough. He don't have to change anything. Right, So I just kept preaching the way God was calling me to preach, and it felt rough because I felt like nobody was supporting me there. And this little old lady, I mean, she was a little old lady. She was Ben's age. No, I'm just kidding. She comes up to me, and I was really hurting, and she says, I just want you to know something. She goes, I love to hear you speak. She said, don't ever change. She said, "I, I am praying for you. I believe that God has something big for you. I pray for you every day. I just think he's got something special in line for you. You keep doing what you're doing. It's such a blessing to me, and I'm going to keep praying for you. God's got big things for you. And there were times, I believe that woman is going to get so much more reward in heaven than me, because there were times that I would feel like giving up because people were dogging me and making, you know, saying terrible things to me. And I would think back to that one little woman who like a cold cup of water came up and brought refreshment spiritually into my life when I was struggling. And her prayer power, in my opinion, is a support that's going to make her blessed like a prophet. So when you find a way, maybe you can't do the action of ministry, but you can certainly find the resources to support it one way or another. And he's saying, if you will do that, if you will do that, then you will get the same blessings that the people who are doing the legwork does. Listen, the pastor's job isn't the important job. It's just a job. It's not possible without the people that do everything else. And my reward will be no greater than theirs because together we are the cogs that make one machine work that proclaims Jesus to a lost and dying world. That is what he's talking about. Either do the ministry or support the ministry, but the reward will be the same. Prioritize service however you can. So I think these passages make one thing very clear, and then I'll close. Being a disciple definitely has a cost, a very heavy cost. But the rewards make it seem like nothing. The blessings of God in your life just make it seem like nothing. I've never regretted a day of persecution. I've never regretted a day, my worst day in this world, for the joy I have here, ever. I'm going to go ahead and close there, and I'm going to ask you, would to please bow your heads? If this is your first time here, we always like to give an invitation, and here's why. And I don't do that thing where I ask you to come up front and stuff. I don't do that, but I remember when I was searching for the Lord. When I, well, I shouldn't say searching. He wasn't lost. I was, but um, when I was seeking him, when the, when the preacher spoke, it felt like he was talking right to me, and he didn't even know me. He was a guest speaker. And I started feeling this burden, but I didn't know what to do next. And and one thing he said was, listen, if you just want me to pray for you, just slip your hand over make eye contact with me. And he said, and I'm going to pray for you. And the moment I made that acknowledgement, it changed me. For the first time, I realized that I was saying, I I believe. I need you, Lord. So that's why I always give people that opportunity to take that first step. So while every head is bowed and every eye is closed, if you would like me to pray for you, I'm not going to call you up front or chase you down or junk mail you. I'm just legitimately wanting to pray for you. If you just make eye contact with me, put your head right back down. Bless those people. Or slip your hand up and put it right back down. Bless those people. Bless those people. I'm going to pray for you. Because, listen, I'm no better than anybody out there. Whether you're a believer or unbeliever, we're all sinners. The difference between me and an unbeliever is the grace of God. I accepted it. So I'm going to pray for you. And if you're listening online, bless those people. I, I can't see you, but God can. I'm going to pray for you, too because there's so much room in the kingdom and he's not done doing miracles and he's not done changing lives. The next life might as well be yours. And believers, I'm going to pray for us also because you know what? Sometimes we just become pretty lazy and we get so sucked into the world. You know, when you're really at peace there, there's a problem. We need to not be rocked asleep by this world. We need to pick up that cross and be the disciples he called us to be. I'm going to pray for that too. If you would just Pray with me. God, we thank you so much for all that you do. I thank you for your love. It's amazing. It's so hard for me to understand how you could love someone like me. You know what I was when you found me, and you know what I am now. And the only difference is your grace. I still make mistakes. I still mess up all the time. But your love is so much more powerful than my mistakes, my shortcomings. And I thank you for that love and that grace. God, there's someone here who's confused or doesn't know you. Maybe they've had a bad church experience or a bad experience with Christian people or maybe they're just confused. I just pray you clear that fog out of their mind and let them see the love that made you carry your own cross to that hill to die innocently for them so that they could just make one step of faith, believe that what you did was enough and accept it and your word says that they can do that. You will give them eternal life. I just pray that they make that step today and if they do, they contact us either by one of the cards in the seats or email or however they'd like to contact us because we want to embrace them and walk with them in this journey. We want them to know they're never alone. They have you and we want to be there for them too. And if they live a long way from here and they're watching or listening online, I just pray if they make that decision, they find a good Christian person they know or a good Christian organization or church and link up with them so they can have someone to walk with them in this journey. And God, for those of you, for those of us who, who, who believe Sometimes we get lazy, Lord. We get distracted. We think about us too much and you not enough. I pray that we remember you left us here after you redeemed us so that we could be lights to this world. Let us pick up our cross and follow you. Let us become the kind of disciples that show your love to the world that are not afraid to confess you in persecution. Let us draw people to you by your love working through us. I pray that you go with us as we leave here today. Keep us safe. Let us live what we profess. And if you don't return to bring us home before we meet again, let us come together and give you the praise, the honor, and the glory you're so worthy of. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.